All right, peace, Nicks. Today's podcast is brought to you by the U.S. political system. Ronald Reagan, in an effort to fight his war on drugs, after saying drugs were menacing our society back when drugs were far less a problem than they are today, 40 years and a trillion dollars later, he gave the DEA emergency scheduling power, meaning a law enforcement agency could ban a drug before the medical, health, and science communities had any say. A few years back, the DEA tried to use this emergency scheduling power on Kratom and banned it. But for the first time since the war on drugs inception, a ban was reversed because of outrage by the people. Kratom is used by many veterans who suffered war injuries and became regular opiate users but switched to Kratom. Many street heroin and fentanyl users have switched to Kratom too. Kratom is a non-lethal, non-morphine, less addictive, natural opioid that has saved millions of lives. A petition was sent to the DEA with too many signatures for them to ignore, my own included. For the first time in my life, I felt like I was a part of something that made a difference in people's lives and affected political action. But the U.S. government is back at it again with pressure from Big Pharma to ban Kratom And this time, they are trying to use the FDA to ban it by changing their supplement rules. Peaceniks, I'm calling you to action. It's simple and will only take a minute or two. Go to protectkratom.org, scroll to the bottom, and fill out the petition. It will ask you why you oppose Kratom bans. Give them your reasons, or if you don't have any real reasons for yourself personally, just say because prohibition doesn't work and Kratom is saving countless lives. After you fill that out, scroll back to the top and click on Contact Congress. This will send you to a page where you can send a pre-written email to your senators explaining your opposition to Kratom or opposition to the Kratom ban, or you can personalize it and say whatever you'd like. Today's podcast has been brought to you by the U.S. political system and taking action. I promise if you take the time to do this and the FDA is unsuccessful in their attempt to ban Kratom, you will feel good. You will feel like you actually have a voice. You were heard. You helped save lives. Okay, today's guest is Terry Brown. She is an addiction wellness coach. She, unlike me, is completely sober and does promote abstinence but also she's open to people doing what is best for them. She and I both agree that prohibition does not work and that if safe access to drugs like heroin saves lives, then we should have it for people who need it. She believes in harm reduction and she was a heavy drug user from a young age and through sobriety, she has found a happy life. And that is a wonderful and beautiful thing. Her story is wonderful and heartbreaking and I thank her so much for sharing it with us on the Peace on Drugs podcast. Let's go ahead and drink this cup of herbal tea with Terry Brown. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug Drugs are menacing our society. Any thoughts on the drug problem? I had a great time doing drugs. So tonight, from our family to yours, from our home to yours, thank you for joining us. This is the Peace on Drugs. On drugs. drugs.
All right, Terry, thank you for joining me on the Peace on Drugs podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Aaron. Definitely. So you work um, in addiction, right? Yes, yes, um, with addiction. And we also have a loved one program to help uh, people, mothers, fathers, sisters, friends, what have you, who don't have an addiction, but are trying to understand and, and work, you know, give them the tools they need to understand what addiction looks like. Gotcha. Yeah, that, that's another aspect of it, like Al-Anon, where people exactly. have to, you know, have to deal with it. And um, so, so describe a little bit about the work you do and um, and where you kind of stand on addiction, because I know there's a lot of different, it's a whole spectrum of people that abstinence only based and, or, you know, there's just a lot of different thoughts on how to handle addiction. So how do you, how's your work? Yeah, as, as a whole, uh, Face It Together is, um, embraces harm uh, reduction. Uh, we meet a person where they're at. Um, it's, I think it's unrealistic for most people to assume that as soon as you do some kind of a treatment or peer recovery coaching, you're just going to stop. Mm-hmm. That doesn't happen. Okay? So recovery is not just about abstinence of drugs or alcohol or even behavioral stuff. It's about understanding why you do what you do. Okay. It's about um, a recovery uh, coach index we use is that it's on general health, mental, transportation. It's, it's, your, it's your life in a nutshell. And we give them a series of questions every 30, 60, 90 days and to see where they're at. You know, usually the first one, which I love, is really a raw snapshot. I mean, the numbers are, are really low and, and, and that's not, you know, that, that's what happens. But as they continue to coach and work on their cells, those numbers start, you know, a, a good example would be housing. Okay, right now I'm surfing people's couches. All right. Um, I'm bumming rides, what have you. I take the bus, what have you. Um, but as, as the recovery gets stronger and they build along with the relationship, you know, I was finally able to move into my little apartment. Uh, finally got me a car. So that's, that's what I'm saying. It's, it's a small portion of using or not using. Gotcha. Trying to understand, yeah, why why we do what we do, basically. Yeah, yeah, what's the underlying issue? And that was when I was addicted. Um, I and I had a a Vicodin addiction, and it was not like I quit. I quit many times, and I would just and it wouldn't be that hard. I'd have to go through some withdrawals, and I'd quit. But then I'd always end up relapsing, and it was because I wasn't fixing the problems with myself. I wasn't finding myself spiritually. And um, that's that's what helped me. And, uh, and for some people, that can be Christianity or whatever helps people. For me, it was just getting into meditating and yoga and exercising and doing that, those things. And also things from my past that I hadn't really dealt with and forgiving, um, forgiving myself and people in my past that that I felt wronged me and just moving on from it and just and then be and now I can I don't have that desire to ever go back to an addiction. It's just, um, you know, I still I do still drink and I smoke cannabis but i don't do it in a way that you know gets in the way of my life sure sure and and that falls under the you know forgive yourself for what you did not know if if you don't know how are you supposed to change or do anything it, it's it's impossible but but once you know that's where the work comes in at mm-hmm. and and to you know i for me i i have spiritual awakening in in prison in a sweat lodge. It was amazing. Um, I'm originally from Oakland, California, which is a very, 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 very bad town. Uh, 
So my environment was full with drugs, alcohol, murder, rape, incest, you know, the, the whole shebang. And, um, and my house wasn't much better. There was abuse uh, mentally, emotionally, physically, sexually. Um, the sexual part started when I was about six or seven. You know, what, what is a child of that age supposed to do with that, right? Um, and no one talks about anything because if you talk about it, it means you have to address it. And, and we don't want to do that. Okay. Um, so I think I was about 11. I started smoking pot. And, you know, the pot back then was nothing like it is today. But it took those icky feelings away from me. I would either feel nothing or feel something besides the, you know, the feelings that I was feeling. So, you know, what came to that more experimental, experimenting with drugs, um, teenage years, chaos, drama, cocaine, what have you. And, and I just kept taking it to a different level. Um, when I was about 22, I got violently raped with my, my head busted open. And by that point, Aaron, I was just pissed at the world. Now, screw you, screw you. It's all about me now. That's what it turned into. And fundamentally, I was always a good person. But because of unresolved pain and anger through the years, I acted out irrationally. That's, that's what I did. And, 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 you know, we wonder why people get into addiction. Um, and then after that, I, I call it crack alley. I went down crack alley for a while and uh, I did stuff that I told myself I would never do. I crossed that line. Um, I'm, I'm pretty raw and transparent and I, I talk about all kinds of stuff, but I'll give the listeners a part of this is I would go to this one flop house, trap house, whatever you want to call it, uh, to buy my rock cocaine. And, and, and it was at one time it was maybe 50 apartments in it, but it had been dilapidated over the years. And out of that, maybe six, seven families were still living in it. The rest of the, the, the apartments were just garbage and junk on the floor, you know, just a trap house type setting. And so, you know, one day I, I spent my 20, 30 bucks, whatever it was. And of course you want more. Um, so I asked this dude who was in there, I said, hey, why don't you, you know, I, I spend good money with you. Why don't you just like, you know, give me a dub. And he looks at me and he says, I will if you let me fuck you. And I said, uh, okay. And at that moment, I knew I had crossed that line, you know. But here laying down on this filthy, filthy floor and, I feel the tears coming down from my eyes. And, you know, he did his thing and, and got on. Um, but I was trying to fill this empty hole inside of me and for, for years, you know. The drugs started milling out. More drinking came to me. Um, I ended up moving to South Dakota in December of 93, and it was minus 26. I'm like, who in the hell does this? This is insane, you know, coming from the Bay Area. And, um, you know, I brought with me and all my shit and um, started racking up DUIs. Um, fortunately, I had a very high tolerance because I had been abusing for so long. But anyway, here's the crazy part is that with the irrational thinking is my first one, oh, geez, damn it. Well, that's not going to happen again. You know, I went through 
jump through the hoops and barrels. And so these DUIs, I got seven of them in four years. And you know why? Why did I figure it out after? I don't know the third one maybe. Yeah. I kept making excuses and feeding that empty hole inside of me. I uh, went to prison twice, uh, the fifth one, and I didn't learn anything. I swore that I was, I learned my lesson. I didn't. And then four months after I got off a of paper, um, I got a whole new number for a DUI felony hit and run, and, and I got a five-year sentence. Sent me to prison. And, and there, there is when my story starts changing from a more positive growth um, um, way I wanted to live. So I, uh, I never had, a, I, not a religious person by any means, but I've always had this, this, this understanding knowledge that karma, the universe, God, whatever, what was somewhere. And so I asked these gals, can I go in a sweat lodge? And he says, yeah, Terry, you know, just make sure you drink a lot of water. It gets really hot. So I'm like, okay. And I'm looking forward to it. So on a Sunday and I, I go in here. Are you familiar with, with sweat lodges? Um, not very much. I've I've heard about them, but yeah, I'm not very familiar now. Yeah. Uh, so it's a it's a it's a material man woman made like dome, huge dome that can you know, easy twenty people can get in there because you're kneeling, you're, you're sitting, um, with your legs crossed, and uh, they put the flap down which is letting air in, and, and, and hours are spent before this getting the rocks hot for the actual sweat. So there's a, there's a routine, there's a, there's a pattern that, that is used every single time. Each person has some type of different responsibility with it. And um, so they put it down, and I am like so getting so hot. I'm like, I can't do this. I'm going to get out of here. Like, no, you're going to stay right here and you're going to let yourself experience this. So I start praying uh, to have this, this, this heat, you know, let me deal with it. And I had got myself in this kind of like a trance because there's singing and, and the pipe going around the tobacco pipe. And I'd say within maybe 15 minutes, the heat starts to subside. And I'm like, Okay, well that that's working, and then um, then I uh, I prayed to have the uh, desire of drugs and alcohol lifted from me. In a very short period of time, again, I felt this um, weird, beautiful scary, intimate, I don't know what the hell, what, I, I couldn't identify, it was just all kinds of feelings. And this feeling went inside of me, it just overwhelmed me, I just started crying. And, and at that moment I knew that through all the years of shoving anything and everything inside of me, I finally got connected um, to something spiritual. And I believe that 100%. And I knew when I left out of prison, I would never drink a drug again. And it's been 24 years, and I, I haven't touched anything. That's so amazing. It, it is. It was my burning bush, you know, and I would share that with people. And, they, you know, it never happened to me. I'm like, I don't know what to tell you. Everyone's got their own, you know, whatever. Do you. Whatever works for you, do mm -hmm. it. 
And um, so, yeah, that's when my life started changing. Um, that's great. So I, I was wanted to ask you, because you said you had seven DUIs and you were wondering, well, why wouldn't you learn after the third? And I'm just wondering, in a way, do you think it's a cry for help to get to get caught, to just be like, I'm, I'm, I don't, you know, putting yourself out there in a situation that gets you in trouble just to be like, it's a, in a way a cry for help, do you think? Not for me. No? No. It was my rational thinking that that was a problem. And so every time I get one, I go, damn it, man, not again. Yeah. Oh, well, I've done it before. I can do it again. And finally, it's like, no, you, you can't keep living like this. This, this is not... But I didn't know how to change her, and I, I really didn't. It wasn't something that was in my environment. I just do what you do, and like everyone else do, and get on about your business, and you know, hold on to all your fears in life. That, you know, yeah, it, it's it's a, it's amazing. It's 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 the thinking. Yeah, it really is. So, and when you were when you were doing, um, like you said, anything and everything, whatever drug you could you could find and use. I've been there. Um, I don't think quite as, as got as deep as you maybe. Um, and, um, I think you, you know, you had more trauma than I had, but, um, I did, I did have that mad to live kind of this, like, I don't care if I die. I don't care what happens. I'll do, I'll do the drugs and I'm going to just to escape the way I'm feeling. I want to get, I'll, I'll, you know, get into this other mindset, whether how drunk or how high I am, it's better than how I feel when I'm sober. And um, I just wonder, because uh, I was reading something, and I don't know if this applies to me so much, but for a lot of people it does, is that when you have the trauma as a child, I was reading, you know, a lot of children will blame themselves. And the reason that we do this, it's a, it's a human thing to do, because we want to be in control of our environment. And as a kid with an abusive parent, there's no way you can be in control because you don't have control there. But if you tell yourself it's just something you're doing wrong, if you can tell yourself that, then you can believe falsely that you do have control. And then we live with this, this hate of ourselves and that that's one of the things you try to escape from. Do you think there's some of that with you? Yeah. Yeah, I definitely do. And, you know, these two people who were doing the molesting, they were older cousins. I, I was also adopted. I think that's that's important for me to throw in the story because that mm -hmm. was also another component to um, my thought process. And, you know, it, it wasn't like they were, like, beating me up and forcibly having anal. I mean, it, it wasn't like that. But the fact was it was still being done, and children's brains are not supposed to – you know something's wrong. You know it shouldn't be going on, mm -hmm. Okay. And then you don't tell anyone because you're told, I, if I remember, you know, don't don't tell it because I'll get in trouble. And it's not that bad what we did, right? That kind of language. So you're like, oh, okay, but you're still feeling like shit inside, yeah. you know. And and I had abandonment issues. I was codependent. I was looking for love in all the wrong places. The adoption because I never fit and. I knew when I was like five or six years old that I like girls that I don't know. I'm five, I'm six. Right. Um, I, I'd be asked where you want to be when you grow up. And I'd say a boy because I thought you had to be a boy to like girls. Um, and so my sexuality was, was something that wasn't talked about in that type of setting. Mm -hmm. um, and, 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 and this was another thing that, you know, I don't mention all the time, but for right now, I think it's important is that I, I met my birth mother back in 2005, I think it was. But anyway, she got pregnant. She's from this Mormon family. 
and and good girls don't get pregnant, you know, especially back in 1961. And she uh, she delivered me, and and she actually kept me, you know, for like two weeks. And and I was told that that's a bonding time with the mother um, is going on. So she puts me up for adoption, and she and, and I found this was all untrue. She lied and said that a couple of, of light-skinned black men raped her, and you know, one smelled good and and said and, and sound like he had at least a high school education. And I'm going, that's bullshit. I was raped, you know that 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 wasn't mm-hmm. going on. So with that, my father, my adopted father, he was he was he was he looked a white man to me. He looked very white. Um, my mother was black, so they put me in this family because she lied and said that it was it was some black man so i'm growing up a very confused child and 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 my mother was 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 very abusive with with the beatings and going out taking uh branches you know switches off the tree and at that time was in catholic school so our little legs would be exposed and and she you know beat us with it and and Physically, she was present, but emotionally, she wasn't, you know, mm-hmm. and obviously that affected me, you know. Um, so another way, yeah, it's, it's when you don't have any control over anything, what do you, you just take it and you're angry and you're upset and, and you're acting out because you don't know what to do with that because you're a child. Mm-hmm. And then you take that into your teens, your 20s, some people 30s. It took me until I was 37 to finally go, all right, this is what I need to do. And, and I started putting in the work. And uh, for where I am today, I'm not even talking about a materialistic level, which is, you know, I've managed to do okay with buying things, homes, what have you. But um, I had to learn to change my thought process because as a young child, I rewired my brain to learn survival skills, and that's what you do. And then you take that into your teens and 20s or, or whatever. Now, going into a life of recovery, once again, it's about rewiring the brain to learn life skills. And the more we, we do this, the more we make this the new norm, and it, it's work, and it takes time. But what it does is it starts pushing back those survival skills back back so they're like they're like in the back of your head they'll never go away and, and they don't have to per se but you don't have to reach for them anymore now you're you're using your um you know your new life skills that you've learned and 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 that's why it's hard a lot of people uh it's it really go do the time it's easier to do the time than it is to get right with yourself because of all your fears and insecurities and neglect abandonment all of that shit. you know what what do you you know, and it, it, here's something I heard a couple of years ago I liked is that instead of saying to people, you know, what's wrong with you? How about what happened to you? Help, help me understand, you know, um, you know, people and their addictions. We, we didn't get up every day and go, whose life am I going to screw over today? You know, that's, that's not how it goes. Right. Like guilt and shame and everything else in there. So... So you found um, the sweat lodge was your first, uh, that was your burning bush, you said, right? So when you work with uh, with addicts, people with, um, you know, 
similar problems or problems that are at least relatable to what you went through. What other kind of versions of a burning bush have you seen help people that, you know, other, other things, if it wasn't a, a sweat lodge, you know, what things have you seen help people and change people's lives? Well, um, I first started off doing AAA. I mean, it was a nice structure. It is. I, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and I, I needed structure in my life early on. And so the steps were helpful. I was able to build a strong, strong foundation to, to build my, my house on. And, and those, those two years, my early recovery, I, I hold near and dear to my heart because I never want to forget where I come from. Now, some people may find it with AA. Some people may find it in the church, the Red Road, Native Americans, Sweat Lodge. Um, I, 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 I think for now, especially doing the work I do, being a recovery coach, um, it's the pure connection. And that, mm-hmm. that's what it is. When I can, when I first meet someone, and, and we work on men and women. I don't just do girls like AA. We, we do, you know, whoever's the best fit. Um, for that coach. It's about sharing my story and asking them in a very brief, you know, scenario I give them is that can they relate to that in any form or fashion? And and they'll go, yeah. And and so we start having a conversation. It's not lingering on the past per se, but we do have to understand why you do what you do. So in, in me being able to share my, my life and, and be where I am today with my recovery um, and letting people know that it, it was about changing your thought process and meeting you where you're at. So the more you start connecting, connection is a key word, I think, from people that I've helped is, is connecting with someone. So... Maybe you connected in AA, maybe you connected in smart recovery. It doesn't matter where you mm-hmm. connect, just as long as you connect, because there's more than one pathway, thank, you know, thankful that it is. And you start seeing the light bulbs go out, and you start seeing, understanding why I do what I do. And it's about practicing conscious awareness and being more mindful of your surroundings. Mm-hmm. Um, those are tools that I've found to be very helpful in the growth and understanding a person's personal um, recovery. That's what I've seen. Yeah, and, and I like when you talk about reconnecting with people. Uh, Johan Hari is one of my favorite authors who wrote about the war on drugs. His follow-up book was about uh, the mental illness problem and depression problems, and he talked about lost, and the name of the book was Lost Connections, that we've become way less connected with each other. And you think with um, social media and with these new technologies, they would bring us closer together and more connected, but it's actually the opposite. The, the way that we're connected isn't natural, and it's a lot more um, angry. I mean, especially with the, how politically divided our country is now, all Facebook is is people yelling at each other. And if you think about – I like to think about like the way people yell at each other in a car because there's enough division where they'll flip the, off the person beside them in a car, but you wouldn't do the same thing in an elevator just because it's just – it's not a natural thing to just – flip somebody off. I mean, there's exceptions to that, of course, but most people don't act like that in an elevator, but they might in a car, same online. If you saw that person at a, at a, you know, at a restaurant or something and they were ta- talking politically, you probably wouldn't just call them a, you know, all the horrible names that you see on Facebook, you don't, you don't see happening as much in person. And that's because we're not really connected and people 
especially the youth, the kids in high school are going through this on Facebook. And I think that we're going to see addiction and overdose at all time high. This has a lot to do with COVID isolation, but also I think that, you know, we're, we're just more disconnected. So yeah, if we can. Yeah, you're right. And and all that. Yeah. He's, he's a wonderful author. Uh, One of my heroes is Gabor Mate and he, and he writes, in the realm of hungry ghosts. And hungry ghosts are people in their addictions. He's this wonderful, wonderful man who understands trauma. Now, I always knew that my uh, that I had trauma there. But then I started understanding and him teaching me is this, this is why you do what you do. And if, if, if you understand why you do what you do, you can change it, right? And, and he just hit every, every level that I was thinking about. So he's got this one thing called four steps plus one, nothing to do with AA stuff. And it's designed to help you revalue, refocus, reattribute um, your life and understanding why conscious awareness is very, very um, unnecessary. Um, yeah, yeah, it's... Uh, what was the name of that I, author? I want to I want to look that up. Yeah, yeah, uh, Gabor G A B O R Mate. I think it's M A T E, um, and he works out of up in Canada. Can't remember what what, what town up there, but um, Hungry Ghosts. I like that. Yeah, he's, he's got several books, but that one that one really resonated with me. And I use I, I read the book, um, and then and then I went back and wrote down stuff in the book that I thought was worthy to help me and then I turn into a word document and and then I give them to my you know, to, you know read this and they're like wow this makes a lot of sense yeah it does make sense doesn't it so we're just not it's not just for people with with addiction it's for people with um, compulsive irrational um, insecurities thought process and that is not pointing to anyone particular. They can do that to anyone, right? We're, we're, we're so, we want to go to the, uh, the substance misuse. You know, well, at least I don't use drugs. Oh, okay, <laughs> good for you. Um, you know, you're still an asshole, you know? <laughs> um, yeah, so, and, and, and one thing I want to point out too is with this generation, it's very scary. When I was, when I was young and doing drugs, you know what you were getting. Exactly what it was. Mm-hmm. Now, eh, Russian roulette out there, and it is scary. You know, yeah. um, I had a friend die in 2020 of, um, and um, he was just doing cocaine, but there was fentanyl in it, and um, and he wasn't even a regular like big cokehead or anything like that. He just every once in a while liked a little cocaine, and it killed him. And then, um, uh, you know, other kid, uh, people that are just dying is it, opiates. It's people that use Xanax on the streets. It's everything on the streets now. So, um, and yeah, I, I said, if, if I, if I was right now where I was 20 years ago, I would be dead. I'm a hundred percent sure that I would not survive at, if I was going through, you know, my teenage or, um, young adult years in this current black market climate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so you, you're saying you're how many years sober now? 23, is that what you said? 24. 24 years sober. And you, and so, so you, you know, you know, no alcohol, cannabis, anything, right? Just sober. And now when you, when you do um, your 
uh, addiction counseling, do you strive for um, complete sobriety? Or if someone's an opiate addict and, and enjoys cannabis, do you just try to, like, how do you coach people on that? You know, it's, it's an individual thing, one. And number two, maybe the person, um, you know, thinks that cannabis isn't really a thing. It's the opiate. That's the real problem. Okay. And, you know, I don't want to give up everything. Okay. I'm not going to try, you know, I'm going to try to help them understand what it looks like. Um, you know, everyone wants to be, you know, God, I just, why can't I just have a couple and be a social drinker? That would be wonderful. But -hmm. most people can't. Uh, if you could drink and smoke dope and gamble and shop and eat and all that stuff in moderation, knock yourself out. Mm -hmm. But most people can't. It's, it's all or nothing. So, you know, trying to find that happy medium. So initially, it's, so, it's like with mental health addiction or mental health issues and substance use issues. Which one do you work on first? You know? um, a lot of people who use um, drugs or alcohol and they're, and they're taking mental health medication and it's just doing this. It's, it's not working. It's what's the point, right? So yeah. I, I think, and I'm not a certified therapist or counselor. And that's one thing that we are very, you know, we don't, we don't, we don't do that. Everyone plays a role. Um, and us as uh, certified peer recovery support coaches, we, we know where to go and where not to go. Now, each of us may have a, a certain field maybe we're really good in. Like for my own personal self, I have issues with being gay. I have issues with being molested. I have issues with DUIs and, and, and prison. So, so, <laughs> The more, the more foreseeable, like bad things that you have going on, it's perfect because we're using those to connect uh, with people. Like, you know, maybe someone, especially some men, maybe they don't, uh, coaches, they don't understand molestation and rape. So obviously we're not going to pair that with that person. We want to pair that person with similar or like backgrounds to, because it's not about us, it's about the client getting what they need mm-hmm. yeah. um shoot i had a follow-up question and now i cannot remember what it was um oh it was about uh the, the idea that people it's harder to get um to get help when you're going through your addiction um but i, I think some so say you're a heroin addict right now and you're going, you're getting your heroin on the streets. If you're going to try to get counseling while you're also going through your addiction, it is hard, but it's also hard because if you don't find it in time, you're going through withdrawals or you're having to use methadone, which isn't the preferred high you want, or the heroin you're buying is now mostly fentanyl, even if you're being sold as heroin. So you're, you're, you're just not in the right mind frame constantly. So it, it will be hard for you to get therapy, but countries like Switzerland that now offer heroin to heroin addicts and therapy now you have somebody that can get balanced on a correct dose of a safe supply of heroin and they can go to counseling and then i think it's easier for them to start figuring out why they became addicts because they're on a regulated dose of that drug and a lot of them do get better a lot more than they do in this country yeah i i think that portugal was like 20 20 years ago they um they decriminalized yeah they did in 20 yeah 2001 or 2000 
but they um but they still don't have legal supply i'm not sure about for addicts um how they because i know that in our country you cannot prescribe any opiates other than suboxone and methadone uh, canada there's a there's a program for hydromorphone which is dilaudin but that's uh, still a very restricted program. It's not, it's very hard to get on. Um, but they, but when, when people are able to get on the program, they do so much better. And some people will be on opiates for the rest of their life. That's just, they're not going to be able to get off of them and offering them a safe supply, in my opinion, is much better than forcing them to just buy it on the streets. But I do think ultimately, if you can find a happy life without them, that's the better alternative. Definitely. Oh, heck yeah. Yeah, I, I actually have one client. He he's out of Denver area, and he's been on methadone for twenty years. He's got this neurological stuff going on, and there's a part of him that really, really wants to get off of it. I mean, a very small part, but you know, you would never know. He he's a he's a big wig at a construction place, and he's you know he's he's got a lot going on, but it's not affecting his his life mm -hmm. um, and and I was thinking about this uh, a shame on eBay all right you go on eBay and you can purchase anywhere from a hundred to eight hundred dollars a pill pressing machine really what the hell you know you, you get the fentanyl China yeah. comes in the mail and you know I'm just gonna pop out these pills yeah, I did not know that eBay. yes Pinterest is another one. I was looking at some clothes and um, it took me to this swag page and, and I'm not, not kidding. There's a pair of jeans and a t-shirt. It's got a backpack and it's got a lot of money. It's got a Glock and it's got lean. It's purple. I know what lean It's purple. And I'm like, what? What are you doing? Are what, you what, now, what is out? lean? Lean is, is predominantly was big in the South. It's, it's um, um, coating cough syrup mm -hmm. mixed with, um, for some reason, I like Jolly Ranchos and Sprite. It sells like $1,000 a bottle. Wow. And I, have heard, I have heard that name. I wasn't sure what it was. Yep. So shame on Pinterest. You're, 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 so they're you're selling, there's some, they're selling or they're just promoting coating? No, it's, if you go on if you go on Pinterest, they'll show you clothes. Mm -hmm. Like you know, go in the clothes, look at it, maybe an outfit, whatever, and then there'll be pictures like an um a um here. I'll show you right quick. Give you a better idea. Uh, I don't think I've ever used Pinterest. I use it for my art stuff. I go on there. So I don't know how good you're gonna be able to see this, but okay. Hear what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. That's an outfit. The hat, the tennis shoes. Got his phone, got his watch, and he's got a Glock over here. Yes, yeah, yeah, see okay. that. And this is the lean. Oh. It's a white cup, and it's usually two cups, signifies. Okay. It is. And then, you know, he's got the wad of money in, in his phone. Hey, well, come on. Yeah. It pisses me off. I say this because it's wrong on, on so many levels. Well, it's glorifying that, that culture, but that, that kind of gangster culture of selling drugs, carrying your piece, having the water cash, yeah, sipping on that. And that's a culture that, that really is just, we've done nothing to, to prevent that, that violent side of that culture from happening with the war on drugs. Cause you have uh, a whole group of kids in the inner cities that were not helped at all. When, um, when their fathers, you know, back in the eighties when globalization happened, they're, they're, 
people were losing jobs. We did not invest in, in re-education or job training, anything to help them when, when they lost their jobs. Instead, we just waged war on them and, um, and moved a market, a drug market right into their communities. And so this is what you see. And again, I'm not saying like, I don't think Pinterest should be promoting uh, an outfit saying part of your outfit is a Glock and some drugs. Like that's not a good outfit to promote, but. Yeah. Um, here's my feelings on the war on drugs. There is no war on drugs because it's just way, 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 way too much money, too much money on the table to make it go away. And how many people would be out of a job? Oh, 100%. The people fighting the war need it to continue. Yeah. It, it's not going anywhere. No. Um, another one, harm reduction. South Dakota, still, last thing, a lot of things. They don't have a needle exchange program. Now, needle exchange program is harm reduction. Mm-hmm. Number one, they're not using dirty needles, not sharing. Um, they're not ending up in the emergency room because of getting an infected needle, whatever. It's not enabling them because guess what? They're still going to use, Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, South Dakota is another one. I think I heard something, maybe it's going to get to a misdemeanor, but they still have ingestion as a felony. <laughs> it's, you've already used it. It's inside of you as a felony. Now, mostly they use it as a bartering tool, but the fact that um, you have a person struggling uh, and you're going to give them an, add another felony to their sheet, really? Well, let's kick them down a little bit more down the curve. Yep, right? exactly. So these are all things that are for harm reduction. Um, yeah, works. we it we just works. got 2019. We got a, a bill passed that allows counties in Florida to have needle exchange programs. Um, I'm not sure if they do. I would imagine if they do, cities like Miami probably do. My, where I live, we do not have that. In, where uh, are you in Florida? I'm in Fort Myers, Lee, Lee County. I I just moved here to Florida. Uh, back in July. Where are you at? I'm in Port Orange. Two miles from the beach of that. I think about a mile and a half. Or is that is that on the Atlantic coast? Yep, yep. It's north northeast. North, okay, so up near St. Augustine? Yeah. Okay, I love St. Augustine. Yeah, it's a cute little town. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I moved here because um, my wife was here helping, assisting her daughter years ago with cancer. And... Um, let me add this to this. I think it may be important, it, even though it's something I really linger on. For all intended purpose, I'm a very healthy gal. I'm 61. No one believes me. You know, I, I have good genetics, which I'm thankful. But in 2019, um, I'm coughing up blood. And I don't know, what the hell is this? You know? And the next day, it was like I hacked up this blood clot, I guess. I don't know. And, and I, I take it to my doctor. And, and she sits me down and she says, Terry, you probably have stage three cancer. And I'm like, what? <laughs> what the hell are you talking about? Right? And, you know, the anger, mad, pissed, you know, I've had a fucked up life and I was a kid, I was abused, all this stuff, and I got into recovery and all these good things. Now you're going to put this on my plate. Really? Okay. But, you know, I looked at it, Aaron, and after getting all through the anger and letting myself feel the pain and piss and all that, it was finally like, okay, you got cancer. What are you going to do with it? So the way I look at it, you have two choices. You can either die from it 
or you can learn to live with it. Pick one. There's no do-overs. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I'm, I'm doing pretty good right now. The, the first round, it started out my lung, um, uh, three, mm-hmm. and then it was doing really good with radiation. And then the little bastard shifted and went down to my pelvis. So officially was at stage four. Um, but for the last 15 months, I've been hopefully like in a remission of just doing maintenance. Now, the reason I sell, I, I, I share that with people because I'm not looking for pitiful. I mean, you know, why me? Well, why not me? What makes me so special, so different, right? There's billions of other people in this world. But I use it to help people understand perception, okay? To really understand what's going on in your life. Is your life really that bad? You could have this going on. You could have this going on. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing. People will tell me, shit, I guess I got nothing to complain about. <laughs> I'm like, sure you do. But um, the fact is, you know, we're all going to die. No one's mm-hmm. going to make it out alive. Would I like to be around longer? Of course I would. Um, but I moved to Florida to get a better quality of life. The, the South Dakota winters are just brutal. Mm-hmm. Like I said, my wife was here, and it was finally just, you know, sell my home, South Dakota, and move to Florida. So that's what I opted to do. And, 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 and things are good. Things are good. That's great. I do like it. I love the weather down here. Um, every area of, area of Florida is different, and uh, Fort Myers is not necessarily my favorite area, but uh, for work, it's really great. And um, I, it's beautiful down here. So for that, like, couldn't ask for a better place to live as far as the weather goes. Yeah, it's hot. It's hot. Right now it's ridiculously hot, but I get used to that. My uncle told me he was living in Sarasota. He said, "Hey, it's a lot easier to get used to the heat than it is the cold." He was right. Yeah. Can, can you mind? Can you imagine minus twenty, minus <laughs> hell, minus period? No, I, I'm from North Carolina originally, so that wasn't even that cold. And I went back. I go back there in the winter sometimes, and I can't even do a North Carolina winter. So no, I cannot imagine twenty below. <laughs> I, I want to read this to you, Aaron. I think you might, because I, I, I didn't want to mess it up. But this is taken from in the realm of hungry ghosts. Okay. The method they found was developed to help people with, with OCD. Um, but they may be used not just for OCD or addiction, but for any compulsive, repetitive, self-deprecating, self-harming thought pattern. What? Okay. So it applies to any person. Once again, it's not it's not singling anyone out. And... You know, he, he, he breaks this stuff down to help you in it. And he, he'll, he's big on it. He has a CD addiction. Lots of classic music that and people go, CDs, come on, really? But you know what? That's his. You, you mm-hmm. can't tell someone, oh, you didn't have it that bad. How do you know? It's, it's your perception of how bad it was. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, so... I definitely look at addiction as a compulsion disorder. It's it's not necessarily the substance. The problem with substances is if you have a tendency to have a compulsions, the substances can be worse than other things because they also do have the chemical um, hooks that can get in you. But it's not just chemical hooks. I think we exaggerate how much it is the chemical. Exactly. But you're right. Oh, you're right. How long have you been in recovery? Um, I would never call it recovery. I, when I finally got off the Vicodin, I um. I just didn't go back, and uh, I I did I well what I did find other drugs to like I got an Adderall prescription which I I am AD 
ADD or ADHD, but um, I, I don't like Adderall, but I used it because I needed, I was, you know, when I was going through opiate withdrawals, I had no energy, couldn't work. Even after the, the initial um, feeling of, uh, you know, the sick, being sick went away, I still didn't have energy. So the Adderall helped with that, but then I was drinking too much. I was chain smoking, but I, I did that for long enough to where I, to where opiates weren't a problem. And the Adderall was a lot easier to stop because it didn't have the withdrawal other than being tired for a few days. Yeah. And I stopped Adderall. And like I say, I'm, I am ADD, but it's much, in my opinion, I'd much rather just deal with being a little spaced out and not being able to focus on things versus being on Adderall. Cause I, and if Adderall works for people, I, whatever works for you, great. But for me, Adderall is just another drug that makes me very, feel very weird, anxious and antisocial. So, um, but yeah, I smoke cannabis um, and I, for most people that smoke cannabis, they'd probably consider me a microdoser because I, I don't like being too high. I like to just a little bit. It makes me feel like going to the gym and makes me feel like I'm doing, you know, playing my music and stuff like that. But um, yeah, so it's been since I was addicted, it was it's been six years now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I always tell the story. I, I had an injury at, where I broke my jaw and um, that, that I was prescribed Percocet. And if they had known I had had a previous addiction, they wouldn't have given me anything and I would have suffered, but they didn't know that. So I got a prescription for Percocet, took it for three weeks, and then they offered me another one. And at that point, I wasn't in pain. I said, no, I'm good because I didn't want to get back on it. And I was fine. Good for you. Good for you. So I think we have uh, some misconceptions about addiction. That's not to say, though, that somebody else who had an addiction wouldn't have a problem with the three weeks on Percocet, but this also could be because they've believed that they've believed the story that they're told that if you just start, if you even take one, you'll be a full addict. If you believe that, then yeah, it can happen. But I, I didn't believe that or want that. So. Yeah. Um, I, I was told that about one third of people who on um, pain meds are for physical pain. Okay. Um, another third is because they're in emotional pain. They just want to drop out. Just, this is what I do. Well, I like this. And then the other third, a combination of both. Mm-hmm. And, and I think um, most people are just trying to escape. Yeah. You know? or, um, Utah, believe it or not, a few years ago became one of the number one states for Oxycontin abuse. So these Mormon people, these pillars of the community, um, the doctors is just writing them out pills. You know, they can feel better. So these, let's pick on the women. These these board house women with their you know perfect little life starts abusing, you know, opiates and such. Um, until they can't. If you think about it, do some research on Utah. You'll be surprised. And so here's the thing with the drug cartels, they were smart. They knew what was coming. Okay. So the doctors start pulling back on prescribing them. And where are they going to go? Mm-hmm. Not far from the Church of Latter-day Saints, they're selling heroin. Mm-hmm. Wow. Because guess what? They have their own hole. You know, people who are molested, abused, there's no uh, discrimination. Rich, poor, black, Chinese, Mormon gay, hip-hop, you know, whatever. People are abused and they're trying to numb themselves. You know, maybe some of these people, you know, these women were molested as children. They have a father that would, you know, beat the hell out of them, whatever. The reason. Mm-hmm. And um, 
yeah, these these uh, housewives are doing the heroin because it, it it affects everyone. No one no one can escape it. If exactly. You're in, if you're into it, it doesn't discriminate. Exactly. And it's also the, the way we treat addicts is unfair. Just in the, in the fact that there's some people that just don't even like opiates. They try them. They don't. It's not for them. So it's and like this. That's not a free will situation when you try an opiate and it makes you feel like my one of my best friends in the world. He just got over a fentanyl addiction. He was on my podcast. He's open about it now, and I'm so happy that he's got off of that. But he said, you know, the first time that he, he did the oxycotton, he just felt normal at finally just felt like this is how I want to feel. And so he got addicted to Oxycontin, a drug that was a little expensive, but easy to find. And the price was steady. So we knew how to handle that addiction. And then in 2012, the government said, all right, we're going to start shutting down pill mills. And they, and now Purdue got in all this trouble and Purdue, you know, Purdue definitely um, should, should be in trouble for what they did, but what they didn't do correctly was they need to say, keep, you need to keep prescribing everybody that you have prescribed on these pill mills and you're going to pay for therapy and pay to wean them off. And you're going to foot the whole bill and we're going to get them off without just simply cutting them off. But that's not what they did. They cut everybody off and everybody went right to the streets at the same time fentanyl was flooding the streets. And that's why we have the CDC saying we have a hundred thousand deaths in the last year. That's because of that. That's because we totally botched the job. And we, when we realized opiates were being overprescribed, we freaked out and just cut off the supply and it's been devastating. Does, um, where you're at, are there any drug courts down there? Any what? Drug courts. Drug drug court. Court. Yeah. So instead of going to prison or jail, drug courts that are nationwide, they have a program where, um, possession, you call it with some meth, you know, whatever pills. So instead of going to prison, which is ridiculous because, percent 85 percent of people are there is there for addiction alcohol and drugs let's just lock them up some more that, that'll work right so it's a program that's intense from usually about 16 or 18 months some do a little bit sooner some do it more than that and and there's certain phases they have to go through and they have to have counseling they have to have you know they have to do a lot and and, and drug courts in your business for a reason because the program is there to try to help keep you out of prison and learn to live a life of recovery, not just not using it. And it's hard, Aaron, it's hard. It's easy to go sit and do your time, get out and get back to what you're doing, get in trouble again. You know, it's just a revolving door. Mm-hmm. So drug court has been, a, a you know, between 24-7 programs or using the scrams, anything that could help a person um, even cut back, that, that's a win, mm-hmm. okay? So they graduate and they go through this and they go through MRT and they do aftercare and they, and they got to they got to do a lot of stuff. But that's what drug court is. OK, so yeah, I'm not sure if we have that here. I'm definitely going to look into that, though. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, anyway, so, Terry, thank you so much for being on this podcast. Before I let you go, do you have any advice that you would give um, a, somebody that's an addict or a family member that? has somebody that's an addict of where where's the best place to start with trying to get help yeah um face it together.org um you can go on that and hit join um and fill out some information that's asking you and as well as the loved ones like i was saying they can also get some help we are based out of south dakota and colorado springs but we do remote i'm remote working out of florida um, it's, it's a wonderful program. I, I fell in love with it when I first started back in 2009 because I believe in, I believe in it 
So there is help. Go on and fill out the information and, and get connected. That's awesome. It's faceittogether.org? Yes. Faceittogether.org. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast and um, keep doing the good work that you're doing. Thanks, Aaron. It was so great talking to you. Good to meet you. Thank you. Yep, you too. All right, we'll talk to you later. Yeah. All right, peace, Nicks. As always, if you like what we're doing, go to Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter at the Peace on Drugs Podcast. Go to www.thepeaceondrugs.com slash subscribe to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning into the Peace on Drugs Podcast. Going to let Twiggy Branches take us out. out. Yeah.